And we are caught in this matrix because we operate on that level and we perceive division instead of infinite oneness. And so what we do is, what, it's a, a thing I, I, I've termed over the years, combing the mirror. We are trying to change out there, which is nothing more than a mirror in here of our sense of reality. We're out there, we're doing this, we're doing that, trying to change this reality out there. We're never going to do it because it doesn't exist out there. It exists in here and it exists in here, if we come from consciousness. Hello and welcome to this second episode in the Reading David Icke series. This time we'll be taking a look at David's seventh book, Heal the World, a do-it-yourself guide to human and planetary transformation. Seventh already, I hear you say, but this is only the second episode. Well, in addition to the two early books on football and environmentalism, I've had to skip over the three that came after the Truth Vibrations, as they're just not available. Not to worry, however, there are plenty more to go, and today's is the last one that can be read in anything like a single sitting. Heal the World is a kind of non-dual spiritual book, written in a really down-to-earth, relatable style. I would suggest this is one of David Icke's strengths as a writer, the ability to talk about spirituality as if he was having a conversation down the pub. The book opens up with the passage, I am you, and you are me. We are all part of one consciousness, one mind that is creation. It is the amalgamation of all thought, experience, understanding and wisdom we know as God, or, as I prefer, the infinite mind. You are God, I am God, we are all God. Bearing in mind that this is written in 1993, Prior to the wide dissemination of spiritual literature on the internet, David's placing of consciousness front and centre, as well as rear and periphery, must have been far more radical at that time. Perhaps he was kicking any remaining accusations around claiming to be the unique son of God into touch there. If David had engaged in messianic-type thinking, he rejects it, saying... It is not a case of one person or group of people appearing over the horizon like some spiritual cavalry to save the planet. In this book, David expresses the kind of spiritual environmentalism he felt the Green Party was too timid about, being stuck in five-sense-only reality. He says, If we do not heal our own wounds, we cannot heal the planet. Physician, heal thyself. In contrast to most non-dual philosophy, David doesn't dwell on the direct experience of this one consciousness. Rather, he focuses on the implications for healing both ourselves, society, and the natural world. He says, I have seen, in the light of extreme experience, how people constantly project onto the world what they think of themselves. I have observed outwardly aggressive people venting their inner hatred of themselves onto others around them. Their victims are merely mirrors for them to thrash out in anger and frustration at their dislike, even contempt, for all that they are and have been. This is the real motivator behind so much violence, crime, and negative behaviour of all kinds. 
Humanity's problem in general, if not every individual, is that far from respecting itself, liking itself, loving itself, it hates itself. Humanity is awash with guilt, fear, and lack of self-esteem. This kind of thinking underpins David's approach to tackling the global conspiracy right up to the present day. External action to change the world may be entirely necessary and appropriate, but absent inner transformation, it is merely combing the mirror. David is advocating for a spiritual activism. What should we make of this? On one level, it's obviously true. People who are consumed by thoughts of am I good enough, am I worthy, are not in a position to resist the powers that be. Those powers may very much like things keeping this way. If we attempt activism absent addressing our own psychological turmoil, the activism itself becomes a vessel for that. It becomes a way of venting our rage for those who find fighting outside pubs on a Friday night an all-too-chavish form of expression. We see this too in the revolutionaries who go on to build up a world even worse than the one they tore down. We will also be easy to manipulate. If we are divided against ourselves, we will be divided against others. Inwardly ruled by our own dysfunction, outwardly ruled by a dysfunctional elite. An elite who are in turn acting out their own trauma on the population. Beyond this, there is another level to David's point that is not so obvious. Do our thoughts affect the world in a directly causal manner? In addition to the indirect effect, does stilling the mind in meditation and resolving our emotional baggage have a direct impact on the world around us? I don't think it's possible to understate the importance of this question. What's really being asked is, on a fundamental level, is the world made of matter or mind? If it's matter, then all the stuff I've said about the knock-on benefits of a spiritual approach to activism still apply. Beyond that, however, beyond the effect meditating for world peace has on the meditator, there's basically nothing more to be gained. If, on the other hand, as David suggests, the world is made of mind, we are all part of one consciousness, well this paints a totally different picture. Meditations on world peace, far from being useless, may be the secret power we need to overthrow the elite and establish a heaven on earth. So yeah, it's a rather important question. Where would we look to inform ourselves on this? Perhaps to the parapsychology experiments of human minds influencing things like random number generators. The Global Consciousness Project has strung these generators together in an effort to measure the impact of large-scale events on our collective psyche. Or maybe it's better to examine examples where minds influence each other in a positive way. In 2007, parapsychologist Dr. Dean Radin ran an experiment where participants would consume chocolate exposed to good intentions. They reported mood improvements greater than a control group, who ate chocolates without the positive thoughts projected on them. Dr. Raiden repeated this experiment in 2013 using tea treated by Buddhist monks, with similar results. By far the most substantial effort to demonstrate the positive effects our thoughts have on the world have been carried out by the Maharishi International University. They claim to have produced 20 peer-reviewed studies demonstrating a small proportion of a population practicing transcendental meditation 
can demonstrably decrease crime and violence in the surrounding area. They even attempted to demonstrate a decrease in the intensity of fighting during the Lebanese war. I must confess to having had something of a prejudice against this. I've always believed, without really looking into it, that this represented the disreputable fringe of Psy research. For one, it seems the complexity of explaining fluctuations in the crime rate would be a good place to hide things with dodgy statistics, in contrast to doing this kind of research in a lab. Even of the best will in the world, it still must be very difficult. Secondly, transcendental meditation has the reputation of being a bit of a cult. This isn't just prejudice, it's fully deserved. At least that was the case when its founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, was alive. I don't know if it's still the case today. I recently read the book, An Antidote to Violence, Evaluating the Evidence, by Barry Spivak and Patricia Saunders. As the title suggests, it evaluates the evidence for the Maharishi effect. I know something next to nothing about data analysis, so I'm easy to take for a fool. But I have to say I was really impressed with the seeming thoroughness of the work. I also acquired a copy of a book called Voodoo Science by Dr. Robert Park. This is the book I see people who dislike transcendental meditation, possibly of good reason, cite to rubbish its violence-reducing claims. In brief, it was a truly dreadful effort, relying on cherry-picking statistics and ad hominem denunciations. So maybe I've been wrong on the so-called Maharishi effect. The jury is out for me then, and this is a theme I'd certainly like to pick up on in the not-too-distant future. The possibilities are exciting, but also terrifying. Imagine the level of responsibility of finding our thoughts were really shaping the world. Would you even want such a thing to be true? Indeed, it didn't take long for the shadow of this to manifest in transcendental meditation. In her book Maharishi and Me, long-term student Susan Chomsky recalls the dean of the Maharishi University calling a student and blaming him for the hostage crisis in Tehran. He wasn't calling one of the Iranian students who took the American embassy staff hostage, in case that's what you were wondering. No, he was placing the blame on an American student thousands of miles away because he'd missed a meditation session. The dean saw a causal link between these two things. One further thing I'll draw from Heal the World, we are introduced to David Icke's iconoclastic thinking. His ability to question, question, question everything, to unpick society's structures, to constantly red pill. I'll quote one of his thought experiments exposing the ludicrous nature of received tradition. He writes, Imagine that the church did not exist, and along came a group of people with a book of ancient texts. We don't know who wrote them, they would say, and we don't know when they were written, or in what circumstances or how much they've changed over the centuries for political reasons, or how much the original meaning has been lost in translation. But we know it's the word of God, and all accurate, even though it contradicts itself constantly, and in part is a justification of violence, slavery, and the suppression of women. Now imagine what we would think if the BBC came out and said they were going to give three guaranteed airtime to this new religion, and that this airtime would not be there to debate and question, but to give this religion the platform to say whatever it liked to promote its beliefs. Imagine also our reaction if the British government announced that it was going to make compulsory the teaching of this new religion in the schools, 
and that it will be taught on the basis that it is historically accurate and not just a story that a certain number of people believe to be true. Think how we would react. We will be on the streets with placards protesting at the imposition from an authoritarian state. We will be shouting Moonies, thought control, indoctrination, mad cult and the like. But wait, what I have described is precisely what happens in Britain and many other countries all over the world today. Where are the people on the streets protesting? Where are all the shouts of mind control? This ability to question the very foundation of things is a core aspect of David's writing. I'll play us out with a clip from his 2020 Skeptical interview to show where it's at in the present day. Host Alex Sakiris asks him about the UFO phenomenon, which is already pretty well off most people's maps. David just takes it to a whole new level, questioning the existence of space itself. Uh, when, um, when, I, when I was a kid, in, 19, in the 1950s, uh, my father had no interest in astronomy before this incident or afterwards. And I'm still bewildered about what the heck happened. Um, we had no money. We never went anywhere because we had no money. And one day, it would have been about 1958, 59, uh, my father walked down the stairs one morning um, and said, we're going to London. And uh, I was shocked because I'd never been to London. It was a long time before I'd go again. And what, 1958, 59, I would be six or seven. We're going to London. And I remember we went on a steam train. Um, and my father said, we're going to the planetarium. Now, I didn't know what a planetarium was. I wasn't bothered. I just, want, I, I just wanted to go to London. I'd heard about it, or so much about it. So we got on this steam train to London. We go to a planetarium, which I, I know the date because it had just opened. It opened in 1958 in London, next to Madame Tussauds in London, in Baker Street. And um, so I didn't know what to expect. So we walk into this planetarium. And I, I sit down at the seat. I don't know what to expect. And then suddenly, uh, the roof, the ceiling, dome ceiling, became the night sky. And it must have been about midday we were sitting there. And I looked at it, and something hit me that never left me. That even at that early age, that could be the night sky. It looked like the, it was midnight and the roof had come off. And that never left me. And um, when all this started for me that I've just described, um, I, I looked up, up at the sky one day and, and it appeared to me as a gigantic dome, like something out of the Truman Show, you know. Uh, and that all came back to me when I started to um, go down this road of uh, this is some kind of holographic projection and this comes into your question because of course we know about this whole concept of the was it the fermi paradox of how there can be so many planets and so many stars and yet the amount of conscious et activity is 
ridiculously little compared with that potential out there. And for me, um, the, the lack of ET activity on the, against the potential of it is part of isolating human perception. You imagine if there was um, there were uh, other races, what we call ETs, um, interacting with the Earth. Imagine what would happen to human perception. Would be dramatically different. We would be getting access to tremendously different perceptions of reality, perceptions of possibility, how to look at life, how to look at this, and how to look at everything. We would be in a, a completely different knowledge base. But if you can isolate or perceptually isolate people to the point where there is no out there or perceived to be no out there, certainly no conscious interaction, then you can isolate this bubble again and you can control what? You can control the information that the target population receives, which leads to its perception, which leads to its behavior. And I'm not saying, not for a second, and, and I wouldn't because I don't believe it's true, that um, uh, what we call ETs can't come into this um, projected reality, both malevolent and um, but the other kind, but um, it's my feeling that this 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 reality, uh, this astronomical reality, is not teeming with life as you would probably expect it to be. Because if it was, the ability to control would not be a tiny fraction of what it is be impossible in fact there'll be too many sources of other information and um i see this one planet this one green from a human physiological point of view inhabitable planet which according to mainstream science anyway compared with the projected size of the universe is about a billionth of a pinhead and then I see all this, all this uh, other potential for life, uh, planets, stars, etc., that appear to not, uh, certainly within, within the frequency band of human sight, not to be inhabited. And it makes no sense to me whatsoever that a planet so small should have this phenomenally beautiful environment very unique environment and then you look out and there's nothing else certainly within interaction range that's anything like it so you've got humanity many people within humanity do actually believe that there is nothing out there and it's an, another part of this isolation. And um, I, I wonder what it is that we're looking at when we look at the night sky, because that 
experience when I was six or seven years old in the planetarium hit me so powerfully, I never forgot it. Basically, well, if I can see the night sky on the top of a ceiling, then what is the night sky? Um, and, and I'm still thinking like that now. Uh, and um, so I'm, like, like everything in all reality, there, there are uh, benevolent expressions of all that is, and there are, shall we say, Wetiko infested expressions of all it is, but I just wonder what this, what this night sky really is, what this space that we perceive really is, and whether it is what we think it is, or actually just a holographic perception, which would, uh, a projection rather, which would, um, which to our senses would seem incredibly real as it does. Okay, thank you for listening. Next time, we'll get into David's first big conspiracy book, The Robot's Rebellion.